You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. I believe you delight to answer that prayer that we just sang. That you delight to show your glory to your people. You delight to conform us to the image of Christ Jesus. You delight to to train and teach and encourage and equip your people through your word. And we pray you do that this morning. That your word... Not human words, but your word would do its work in our hearts. Make our hearts ready to receive what you have for us. That we indeed might be conformed to the image of Jesus. That we might be built up and encouraged for every good work that you'd call us to walk in according to your power at work within us. Speak to us this morning through your word. Chain my tongue on anything that would be distracting or unhelpful, that your word might be clearly heard and understood this morning. Encourage and build up your people, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. And amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. We uh, are continuing our series in the book of Exodus. Uh, Also, welcome back to two services this morning. Um, as much as we love worshiping together in one service, uh, it's, it's rich, it's full, everyone's singing loud, it's sometimes uncomfortably full just because everyone's jammed in together, but we enjoy that. Okay, I enjoy that in the summer. Um, this format in two services creates space for us to actually invite other people in, not only here on Sunday mornings in these chairs, but also in our kids' classrooms for the growing number of children that we have. And the aim of all of that is to welcome people in to meet and experience Jesus and to know the redemption that is available to all that have faith in him. That's why we do what we do. So with that, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Uh, Here at River City, we tend to preach through books of the Bible uh, a chunk at a time. And last week, we began our, our preaching series in this Old Testament book of Exodus. And despite some technical difficulties we had last week, you can go on our website if you missed that and you'd like to get a little bit of an introduction to the series as a whole and to the book, that's available there if you'd like it. The subtitle for our series comes from God's own words in the book of Exodus, where multiple times God says, I am your God. There's this consistent refrain and reminder in the book of the Lord himself saying, Here I am. I am your God who hears your cries. I am your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt and so on. We'll hear that refrain over and over again. Last week, we outlined three main things that Exodus does that will help us as we study the book together over these next number of weeks. One, Exodus tells us who God is. Two, Exodus tells us what it means to be God's people. And three, Exodus shows us the shape of redemption. And so that's kind of the hope that as we study this book together, as we're working through the history and the story that is being told, 
that we will read it through this lens, through these questions of what is this teaching me about who God is, His character, His purposes. Two, what is this teaching me about what it means to belong to Him? If we truly are His people, then maybe it has something to say to us as well. And three, where do I see God's work of redemption and restoration and healing and forgiveness on display in this story? So I want us, week in and week out, to look at our, our, our text through those lenses. We've provided a, a small bookmark. Uh, you can print off, you can stick it in your Bible or in a notebook. Um, if you don't get the weekly update... Uh, shameless plug. It's just a weekly email that gives the list of announcements and things. We also include things like this so you can read ahead. Um, so like next week, we're off-site. We'll be at the park uh, down here at 10 a.m. It'll be awesome singing in the park. Um, one of my favorite sanctuaries to sing in is the one that God fashioned by growing trees and grass with his own hand. Um, so we're going to do that next week. But then the week after, we're going to be looking at Exodus 3 and 4. So this gives you a chance to read ahead. And, and kind of know where we're going to be each week. Now, today, we're going to cover chapters 1 and 2 of Exodus. So if you need a Bible, you can, well, you can turn your Bibles to Exodus chapter 1. And if you need one, you can slip your hands up and some folks will be coming around and you can read along. Now, one of the challenges with doing a book like this in this kind of 11, 12-week time frame is that it, it would be um, challenging, to say the least, to read word for word, every verse that we're going to study in a given section. Uh, Today, we could read all of the verses from chapters 1 and 2, and there really aren't that many. But as we get a little further along, um, that makes uh, it challenging. So what our plan is, not to skip over parts, but because of the narrative nature of it, to pull out a few passages from the larger section that will be our anchors, if you will, to the text we're studying. So this morning, we'll have three Exodus 1, verses 8 through 10, Exodus 2, verses 1 through 3, and verse 10, and Exodus 2, 23 through 25. We're going to kind of focus or read these texts as our anchors as we then work our way through the larger narrative. I hope that makes sense. So, we're going to start in Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 8. We're going to read our text this morning and then unpack them together in our time. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. Exodus chapter 1, starting in verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they shall join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Second passage, Exodus chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and then verse 10. Now a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes, daubed it with bitumen and pitch, and put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the riverbank. Verse 10. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She named him Moses because, she said, I drew him out of the water. Exodus chapter 2, our final passage, verses 23 through 25. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. and The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery 
came up to God. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. This is God's holy word for us this morning. Now last week we talked about the history of how we got here. Excuse me. How do we get to a time and place where the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were now enslaved in Egypt? If you remember, God had provided protection and provision for, for them. He, in a time of famine, actually made a way for them to thrive, not just survive, in Egypt. And now, generations later, they are flourishing. They have multiplied and they grew strong. And the Egyptians, specifically a new pharaoh, subjected them to hardship and affliction. That's what we're being told here. Exodus 1 verse 14 says, The Egyptians made their lives bitter. As we read, the people are groaning under the weight of their affliction. Maybe you can relate. I mean, maybe not to full-on slavery under a foreign king, but you can relate to groaning uh, at least a little bit, right? We groan, don't we? We groan, we experience pain and affliction. Some we can understand and others we can't understand. Especially, I think it's especially hard when that affliction and pain seems to linger, right? When it doesn't seem to have an end in sight. And we tend to wonder, what are you up to in this, God? And when it goes on long enough, we might even wonder, like, is there, is there an end to this? Is it even worth praying about this situation anymore? Because I keep praying the same things, and yet there's still no answer that I can see. So what's the point? Maybe you haven't gotten there. I pray my own heart and our hearts are kept from that kind of of bitterness. But the reality is, so often in times like that, God seems absent. Or we wonder, God, what are you up to in this? Where are you? Right? So our big idea from this text this morning and our sermon from chapters 1 and 2 is this. When God seems absent, and we're asking the question, God, what what are you doing in this? Our answer from Exodus 1 and 2 is this, that God hears the groaning of his people and is working for their redemption. That's what I want us to pull from this text this morning, that when we're asking, God, what are you up to? Where are you? That we would have some kind of spirit-enabled confidence that we'll see in this text to know that God hears our groaning and is working our redemption. Specifically, I want you this morning to hear the Lord speak through this text. You could hear the Lord say, I am your God who hears your groaning. I hear your groaning. I am working for your redemption. Four points today, I think, from the text. Four things I see God doing even when we can't see it. Here's what I think God is up to here in this text. One, God is fulfilling his promises. Two, God is preserving his people. Three, God is preparing a savior. He's preparing for their salvation. And four, he is present. He's fulfilling his promises. He's preserving his people. He's preparing a savior and God is present with his people. So when God seems absent, what is he doing? Let's look at the first one. God is fulfilling his promises. 
We see this in Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. We looked at this passage last week as part of our introduction. Jacob and his sons and all their families, they all relocate to Egypt during a time of famine and are saved by God through Jacob's son Joseph. In verse 7, which we read last week, but the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. What's happening here? Promise fulfillment. If you turn back to Genesis chapter 35, God appears to Jacob. God blesses Jacob, changes his name to Israel. Verse 11 of Genesis chapter 35, this is what God says to him. And God said to him, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. So he commands him to like, go have a family. A nation, here's the promise, and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. This is what God told Jacob in Genesis 35. And what was happening, even while in exile in Egypt, was an extension of the covenant that the Lord made with Jacob his father Isaac, his grandfather Abraham, and the Lord is renewing that same covenant promise with Jacob. And in Exodus chapter 1, God is keeping his promise because the people of Israel are fruitful and increasing in number. They were multiplying. God is doing what he said he would do. You will grow. A nation and a company of nations will come from you even in a faraway place, not their home, even in a time of famine, God was fulfilling his promises. Don't don't miss that. So while all of the promises of God weren't coming to fullness all at once, right? They were still not in the land. They weren't being fulfilled in maybe the way that they expected and in the timing that they expected. It absolutely does not mean that God was slow to fulfill his promises. And it doesn't mean that he was failing to fulfill his promises. He was absolutely fulfilling them. And so if we draw this out just a little bit, when God seems absent in our lives, can we have the same assurance that he is always at work fulfilling his promises? Now, I think the short church answer is, well, yes, of course he is. Right? If, if, if here you're in a time of a season of challenge, And we're talking and I'm asking you, but is God going to be faithful to fulfill his promises? You're going to say, oh, yes, Pastor Jake, absolutely. Praise Jesus. He's going to fulfill his promises. Like, I hope we'd say that, right? Because that's a good church answer. But how do we know? Are we sure? That's the question I'm asking myself. See, Sometimes we need to anchor how we feel or are experiencing something in life to something that is sure, something that we can know. So something that we can know is when God himself says, I, the Lord, do not change. When the scriptures remind us that he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we can hold fast to the idea that God is fulfilling his promises to us. In fact, it was the Apostle Paul who wrote in 2 Corinthians this. He says, all the promises of God find their yes in him, in Jesus. That's, a, that's why it is through Jesus that we utter our amen. Our let it be so. 
our amen to God for his glory. It is God who establishes us with you in Christ. It is God who has anointed us. And it is God who has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. So, God is fulfilling his promises to us through Christ's finished work that is being applied to us through the Holy Spirit. It's a hook for us to to hang some hope on. That we have forgiveness of sin and can have full assurance of the faith that we profess. That God, who began this work of transformation in us, will be faithful to bring it through to completion. That God will supply our every need, not always our wants, but our every need, according to the riches of His glory. That Jesus will be with us, will not leave us, and will not forsake us. Which is why... The simple and profound things that we do here as a church, like confession of sin as we take communion week in and week out, or even the confession of sin that we share in community groups where we confess our sins one to another to say, hey, pray pray for me in this. What are we doing in this? These are acts of faith, believing that God actually will be faithful to forgive as he promised he would forgive as recorded in 1 John. That if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all, capital A, unrighteousness. We actually can believe that. It's how we can work. How we can put in the work, if you will, with all his strength working in us to put to death the deeds of the flesh, right? To kill the old man, to let the old man die so that who we are in Christ, new creations in Christ, can take shape. Not to make God love us more because that's not how this works, but because he has promised. He has promised that he has already perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, Hebrews tells us. He's already at work doing that. To say it this way, he loves us as we are and loves us too much to leave us in that state and delights, he delights to conform us to the image of his son. So it means we can ask in faith for the Lord to provide. When we have a need, and in the exact same prayer that we're saying, God, would you please provide? We can say, thank you for your provision of my hands or my mind or my ability to work or this community that you've put around me that helps support me. Just as a, you don't have to show your hands, but just a little exercise. How many of you have asked God to provide for whatever it is? Doesn't matter. You've, you've said, God, you don't have to raise your hands. I mean, you can if you want, but you don't have to. God, you've prayed this prayer. God, would you provide this? I have this need. Would you help? And in big and small ways, the Lord has answered that prayer. Maybe you didn't get exactly what you were asking for. You thought you were going to get, but you got a meal from someone in your community group or a text from a friend just to encourage you with a truth from God's word. Can I just remind you that that is God fulfilling his promise to provide for you, even in ways you might not know. When God seems absent, he is working to fulfill his promises. Two, our second point is related to the first one. God is preserving his people. Look at verse 8. Of Exodus chapter 1. Moses writes, There was a new king in Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, as an aside, I find it fascinating 
that all through the end of Genesis and into Exodus, we see this title used interchangeably. The title of Pharaoh or king over Egypt. Same, same person. And what's interesting is that Moses never tells us the specific name of the Pharaoh he's talking about. Which Pharaoh was the one who appointed Joseph? Which one made the Hebrew people slaves? Now, we can get a pretty good idea based on ancient records, the reign uh, and rule of different pharaohs and their dynasties. But in the end, it doesn't really matter. The bigger picture here is that there is a nation, Egypt, which has grown up from the time of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, that has rejected God and has set up for itself a leader, one whom they treat as a god. In fact, we'll see in the next few chapters just the the sheer wickedness of Pharaoh and his disregard for anyone but himself, his own reputation, even in the face of the suffering of his own people. So in a very real way, Pharaoh as an individual and Egypt as a whole is representing something. In this case, representing everything that is against God. Pharaoh is the prime example of the logical end of what rebellion looks like. Rebellion against God looks like the Pharaoh that we find in Exodus. In fact, to really get our minds around this, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. Now, you don't have to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 2, God creates male and female, says this is very good, joins them together as husband and wife. He's like, look, I did a thing. It is very good. Genesis chapter 3, of all the trees God gave Adam and Eve, he said, there's just one. The whole garden is yours except for this one. Just this one. Satan, in the form of a serpent, comes and convinces Eve to eat of that tree. She gives some to Adam and he eats. And sin enters. Shame enters. God comes and addresses Adam and says, Hey, what have you, what have you done, Adam? I mean, God knows what he's done. He's trying to, like a good parent, being like, You need to just confess here. What have you done? And Adam blames Eve. And Eve blames the serpent. And this is what God says in Genesis chapter 3. The Lord God said to the serpent, verse 14, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Here's the good part, verse 15. I will put enmity, strife, conflict, enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Okay, here's what I see here. The people of Israel here are essentially the offspring of Eve. They come through the line of Noah and the whole shebang. They're descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And here, they're under attack. They are bruised, if you will, by the offspring of the serpent, who is Satan. Now, I'm not saying that Pharaoh and the Egyptians are the offspring of the serpent in the same way that Israel is the offspring of Eve. But Pharaoh here is representative of the seed of the serpent. If you really want to get into it, serpent imagery in Egypt is actually really fascinating. That's a tangent we're not going to go down. But ultimately, the one who rejects God, who set himself up as a god unto himself, is seen clearly in the example of the Pharaoh. Pharaoh, or the line of pharaohs, represents the epitome 
the prime example of human evil. Pharaoh is what happens when an entire nation redefines good and evil apart from God's wisdom. If you want to redefine good and evil apart from God's wisdom, what do you get? Pharaoh. And so the seed of the serpent is bruising the the heel of the seed of the woman who are the children of promise. And yet, as we talked about last week, it doesn't seem to be working like Pharaoh thought it would. Pharaoh was worried the Hebrew people would grow too large. So, verse 11, the Egyptians afflicted them with heavy burdens. Verse 12, but the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, the more they spread abroad. We'll talk about that more as we work through Egypt or, uh, uh, Exodus as well, how much God's people are spread out often by affliction and oppression. But it backfires. They were going to multiply and grow no matter how ruthless Pharaoh was because God said that they would grow. Uh, Make note of this. Um, You don't have to write in your Bibles. Maybe if you do. There is no force of human will that can resist God's ability to fulfill His promises and bring salvation and blessing to all the nations. There is no force of human will that can resist God's ability to fulfill his promises and to bring salvation and blessing to all nations. Nothing Pharaoh is going to do is going to stop God from fulfilling his promise. They were going to multiply as a nation, whether he liked it or not. Let's keep going. So the oppression wasn't working, the people were growing. And so Pharaoh decided, I got an idea. Let's kill literally kill all the Hebrew children, in this case, kill the boys, just as they're being born. Now, notice, in just a few short verses, the compounding nature of sin. Pharaoh, acting out of sinful fear and pride, afflicts with heavy burdens, and that didn't work, became ruthless, making their work harder and their lives bitter, in the fields, making bricks, and that didn't work. So let's kill all their baby boys just as they're being born. This is what sin does, by the way. Sin continues to drill down deeper and deeper when it doesn't get its way. And here's the crux of what I mean when I say that in the midst of this, God was preserving his people. Verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. I love this. I love this. They feared God more than man and refused to kill the baby boys. Here's a picture of courage in Exodus chapter 1. Verse 18, Pharaoh asks, why have you done this? So not only do they refuse, then they're called before the principal. Why did you not do what I told you to do? The one who has the authority to kill them on the spot. And here's what they say. This is what I'm calling a righteous fib. Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. Now, is it possible that God did something supernatural through the Hebrew women giving birth, that they were just popping out babies before the midwives could get there? It's possible. It's possible. But I think from verse 17, the midwives were very clear that they were going to not do what Pharaoh asked them because they feared God. So what they appear to be doing here is telling Pharaoh something that isn't completely true. And if you look at verse 20, so God dealt well with the midwives. God honors what they've done. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. 
God blessed them for their actions to preserve life and disobey the wicked commands of Pharaoh. Now, as an aside, this opens up a whole can of worms that we cannot completely uh, address today when it comes to the idea of when is it morally right to not tell the truth. There's a whole sphere of biblical ethics that we're not going to get into today because we don't have time for that. We've got too much to cover. But let me just say this. There is a place here that the door is open for our study to ask the question, to what degree are we not only allowed, but commanded to obey God over man when human will contradicts the perfect will and command of God? I think it's a question we should ask, just not in full today. But I see this study, this picture of the midwives, similarly to a couple of more modern historical examples we have that we can look at. To brave European families who hid Jews from Nazi soldiers who were coming to knock and see, hey, you hiding anyone in your basement, in your attic, in your crawl space? Nope, nobody here. Or even more recently, what came to be known as the Underground Railroad in the southern United States, where brave and courageous citizens hid enslaved peoples who were fleeing oppression under slavery, godless slavery, to move them along to safe and secure and free places in the north. Both sets of people, like the midwives here in Exodus, choosing to righteously ignore unjust commands given by wicked rulers because they feared God. This is a snapshot, I think, of these midwives. So here, through the godly action of a handful of midwives, God was preserving his people. God's fulfillment of his promises and the preservation of his people go hand in hand. Jesus says it like this in John chapter 10. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, Jesus says, will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. So even when God seems absent... He's working because he will always preserve his people. I think that's clear here from our text, but that's not all. It's not all God is doing. Point three this morning, God is preparing a savior. We get into this now in Exodus chapter two. Exodus chapter two tells us there's a man who married a woman and they have a son. And after Pharaoh had commanded all the midwives to kill the baby boys and that didn't work, he commanded all the people of Egypt that every son who was born to the Hebrews should be cast into the Nile. Yes, you heard that right. It's not enough to oppress them. It's not enough to make their lives a living hell. It's not enough to tell the midwives to kill those babies when they're born. Now I'm going to command the nation that if you see a Hebrew boy, baby boy, he should be taken from his family and tossed into the Nile. Again, the compounding wickedness of sin. And here, Exodus 2 tells us, a baby boy was born and his mother hid him until she could hide him no longer. Can you imagine, just as an aside, keeping an infant hidden for three months? I can't keep an infant quiet for like five minutes. Three months? And when she could hide him no longer, she put him in a basket made of reeds and pitch or tar so that it would float and be waterproof. She didn't cast it into the Nile, but she set it in the Nile among the reeds. 
so that he might be found by someone else. And in this case, he was found by the daughter of Pharaoh, who was coming to the river to bathe. Pharaoh's daughter's servant goes down, gets the basket, brings it up, and finds inside a Hebrew baby boy, who later would be named Moses, which means draw out, because he was drawn up from the water. What Exodus tells us is that Moses' older sister, who was kind of watching from the sidelines, if you will, asks Pharaoh's daughter when the basket's pulled up, would you like me to go find a Hebrew woman to to nurse the baby? I I can do that for you. And so she goes and gets Moses' own mother as the nursemaid now for this boy. Get this. Pharaoh's daughter ended up paying wages, money, to Moses' mother to nurse and care for her own illegally kept alive child. You can't tell me God's not up to something here, right? It's obvious. God is preserving his people by preparing for them a savior. Now, they didn't know what Moses was going to do at this point. But we can look back and say, clearly God is up to something. The second part of God preparing a savior comes next. Now, what's funny is we're not actually told a whole lot about Moses' life. We know he was put into a basket. We know he was taken from the river. We knew he grew up in Pharaoh's house. And then we get told this, that he flees, right? We don't know how much Moses was taught about his Hebrew heritage. We don't know how much he knew about the covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We don't know how much influence he had growing up in Pharaoh's house. What we do know is at one point, he was watching some Hebrews be mistreated by some Egyptians, and Moses intervenes, kills an Egyptian, buries his body in the sand. We do know that. The next day, two Hebrew men are fighting amongst themselves, and they see Moses, and they kind of go after him. Two things come out of that. One, they ask him, why did you kill your own companion? Speaking of a fellow Egyptian, like, why did you kill one of your own? So they don't see him as one of us. They see him as one of them. And then they ask him, are you just going to kill us too? Who made you judge and prince over us? So they don't fully see him as an authority in Egypt either. So he doesn't know who he is. So Moses was afraid and he runs. What we're told is he flees into the wilderness. And while there, he comes upon um, some daughters of a man named Ruel, also called Jethro elsewhere. We'll talk about that later. Who was a priest of the Midianites. And Moses apparently makes a good impression on at least one daughter, Zephora, by defending them against some opportunistic shepherds. Moses is given her hand in marriage and ultimately charge over Jethro's flock as a son. Of note, Moses is recognized by Jethro's daughters as an Egyptian who saved us from some shepherds, not as a Hebrew. And this begins 40 years of wilderness exile for Moses. Wandering around with sheep. He fled the comforts of Egypt and lived as a shepherd for 40 years. And Moses was going to experience as a preview everything that the people of Israel would experience when they would be rescued from bondage in Egypt. He was going to be the test run for all of Israel. Moses was drawn from the water, saved from being cast into the Nile. Israel themselves would pass through the Red Sea, saved from being buried under the water. Moses leaves the comforts of Egypt 
Israel would have to leave the comforts of Egypt. Now, sure, they were in slavery, but at least they had food and shelter. Moses would sojourn in the desert for 40 years. Israel would wander in the desert for another 40. Moses is called to trust the Lord by faith and go back to Egypt. Israel's called to trust the Lord and by faith go back to the land of Canaan. The land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God is preparing for them a savior. And what's interesting about this is Moses is not only a picture for Israel. Moses is a picture of a better savior, Jesus himself. I want us to to be able to read and see Jesus all throughout the scriptures. and, And we'll find this here in Exodus, that we'll start to see glimpses of Jesus all over the life of Moses. Here's here's just one way that we'll do that. Like Moses, Jesus was born to be a savior for his people. Like Moses, Jesus was rescued from a wicked king at birth. Like Moses, Jesus sojourned in Egypt. Matthew 2 tells us that out of Egypt, I called my son. Like Moses, Jesus lived in relative obscurity until the right time when his ministry was to begin. Like Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness and with Israel spent another 40. Moses got double duty, which was fun. Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness dependent on the provision of God. Moses was called up the mountain to bring the law of God back down to the people. Jesus went up the mountain in Matthew chapter 5 to preach and to teach this is what it means to live in the kingdom in what is known as his Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus himself would carry his cross up the hill to be crucified for the sins of the world so that all things would come to fulfillment in him. In Exodus, God was preparing a Savior. And we see through Moses, God is preparing a greater Savior in Jesus. Not only saving his people from bondage to a foreign king, but saving his people from bondage to sin crushing the head of the serpent with one decisive blow. When God seems absent, do we remember that God has saved and is saving us? And finally, where is God when he seems absent? God is present with his people. Exodus 2, verses 23 through 25 that end this chapter. Another Pharaoh dies. So we started with a Pharaoh being raised up who didn't know Joseph, and now we're another Pharaoh in who also doesn't know, who's further removed from what God has done. And the people groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. And their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. The picture there is like smoke rising up. Their cries rose up to God. Verse 24, God heard their groaning. He saw the people of Israel and he knew He heard their groaning, he saw them, and he knew he was with them. And all of this language is to remind us that God is present with his people. He isn't far off. He's not disconnected. He's not in some faraway place just twiddling his thumbs. He's present. Why? Because God is a covenant-keeping God. His hearing and his seeing and his knowing is connected to his remembering. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. He's already said, I'm your God. You're my people. That doesn't change because you're displaced geographically. You're in a spot you didn't think you'd be. 
doesn't change that. It doesn't change because you're under a wicked leader rather than a godly one. It doesn't change because you're afflicted and enduring hard things. You are still my people and I am still your God. Don't miss that. This declaration of God includes this, that he hears, he sees, and he knows. In a very real and tangible way, Moses was an answer to prayer. God, we are afflicted. We need to be rescued. And God says, okay, I'm going to send someone named Moses. God hears your groaning. He sees your affliction. He knows. He's with you in your struggle. So I'm sending Moses. And as a new covenant people, we can say that God hears our groaning, that God sees our affliction, that God knows us, that he is with us because he has sent us Jesus. All of God's promises, which we've already said from 2 Corinthians, they're already ours in Christ Jesus. God promises that we will find yes and amen in Christ. So when we groan, when we are afflicted, when we weep, we can bring our need to God and he brings his promise to us. That's the picture. Uh, Pastor John Piper says it this way. I found this so encouraging this week. I'm just going to give you the longer quote. Here's Here's what Pastor John says. Every sinner who comes to God in Christ with all of his needs, just bringing my needs, finds God coming to him in Christ with all his promises. When a sinful person meets the holy God in Christ, what he hears is, yes. Do you love me? Yes. Will you forgive me? Yes. Will you accept me? Yes. Yes. Will you help me change? Yes. Will you give me power to serve you? Yes. Will you keep me? Yes. Will you show me your glory? Yes. All the promises of God, all the blessings of God in the heavenly places are yes in Christ Jesus. Jesus is God's decisive yes to all who believe. Amen? So here's what I'm hoping we take from Exodus chapters 1 and 2 today. That wherever you are, whatever circumstances in which you find yourself, you can know that you know a few things. One, that you can know that in Christ, God hears you when you cry out to him. He hears your groaning. It's okay. We've got a biblical category for groaning that is not sinful. We can acknowledge our weakness and plead with God to be our strength and our salvation. And we can know that God hears us when we do that. I want us to know that. I want us to know that God sees you in your circumstance. That whatever you're going through isn't like a surprise to him. He can see not just the depths of your situation, but the depths of your heart, your worries, your fears. And if he can see through to the very core of you, he is able to provide exactly what you need at the right time, according to his goodness and his timing. I want us to know that. And I want us to know that God knows that he's present, that you're not alone because we are finite, right? We are, we're limited, so limited. And we so often tend to miss what God's doing in the midst of all the things that are happening around us or often happening to us. That chronic struggle or that pain, that situation that just will not quit. And when those things linger or are not resolved, we wonder, God, where are you in this? What are you up to? But in these two chapters from this Old Testament history book, 
we get a glimpse and a reminder that God hears us, that he is present with us, that he is at work right now for our good and for our redemption. Oh God, we believe this. Help our unbelief. Amen? Let's pray. God, we confess our view is so limited. So limited. And yet there's some things that that overcome our limitations that we can know that you're so good, that you do not change. You delight in your people. That you are working all things for good, for those who love you and are called according to your purpose. That you're the same, that you don't change. And you who began something in us will be faithful to bring it to completion. Would you do the miraculous and lift our eyes from our circumstances to see the beauty of Jesus again? That we would see with with fresh eyes his goodness, the provision to to save us, to rescue us, to, to encourage us, to comfort us. Remind us that in our weakness is actually where your strength is on display. Thank you, God, that you hear us, that you see us, and that you're present with us. Would you encourage and build up your people? Pray this in Jesus' name.